0: The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff and management.
1: There are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working On Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working On Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez.
2: Welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining you from Dallas, Texas, which is my home base. As you know by now, if you've been tuning in regularly, then you know this program is really all about bringing you guests who t- can talk about their experience of work in order to perhaps maybe educate us on some important matter related to how we experience work, or who can maybe even inspire us to pursue career dreams that we've otherwise put off or convinced ourselves we just can't accomplish. Most people want to feel that their work allows them to matter or to make a difference in some important way. This week, we get to talk with someone whose work, I think, certainly has mattered to a great deal of people across the world. My guest is Dr. Kathleen Keenast, who has served as the Director of Gender and Peacebuilding for the last six years and most recently become the Senior Advisor on Gender at the United States Institute of Peace. The center focuses on the gendered impacts of violent conflict and post-conflict transitions. And to say just a little about Dr. Keenast's background... She also worked 15 years in international development, which included community-driven development in fragile and post-conflict societies, and on labor migration and poverty impacts on women and children. Her regional expertise is in Central Asia, where she lived for several years in Kyrgyzstan. I met her here at a Peacemakers, yes, Peacemakers luncheon here in Dallas when she spoke a few weeks ago, and of course, just had to have her on the show to share her amazing work. She joins us today from Washington, D.C. Dr. Keenest, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Elise. I am so excited about this conversation. You have done some really interesting work that I really want to be able to share with our listeners today who I think will be inspired by it. Maybe we'll even be able to enroll some folks to help you along the way. So (laughs) to to get us started, will you just say a little bit about the work you're doing today at the United States Institute of Peace? Maybe say something about the organization and its mission.
3: Thank you so much. Absolutely. The U.S. Institute of Peace is celebrating its 30th year, uh, we are uh independent, nonpartisan institution, which was established and funded by the U.S. Congress to focus on uh, the nation's capacity to manage international conflict um, without violence. In other words, how do we solve problems without resorting to violence to get to peace? And so uh, we work very much uh, on the ground in violent conflicts uh, in Kabul, in Baghdad, in many places where conflict has become a way of life. And our work is unique in that uh, we often are um, behind the scenes, helping to convene uh, important discussions uh, that can 't necessarily be public discussions, um, but often also providing analysis, uh, education training, and really working with local partners uh, who are working for peace. Mm,
2: wonderful and extraordinary at the same time Dr. Keen asked really, really impressive. I want to learn more about your actual role as well. I I know that you serve today as a Senior Gender Advisor at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and I understand that this is a new role that reports to the President there, in part of his position, you were instrumental in the development of the gender and peace-building portfolio of the Institute. I I know that from your background. But today, can you help us understand, how do you spend your time? What does a typical day look like for you?
3: Oh, well, uh, every day is really different, actually. (laughs) I bet, yes. uh, I think... What uh, characterizes our entire institute also characterizes my work. Uh, One, uh, we deal with, as I mentioned, conflicts uh, from around the world. So, for example, uh, yesterday I was in meetings with um, conflict-related concerns in South Sudan, which, as you well know, uh has uh over the last several years uh their peace agreements have fallen apart and they have just most recently signed another peace agreement within the country uh among the uh leadership there and so um, you know that is an example in which we talk about uh what is the role of women in the peace building efforts. How can we bring, for example, more women to uh the the proverbial peace table, if you will, but to make sure that we have a whole of society reflected in the type of peace agreements that are made. In the case of South Sudan, and uh, I think many of your um, audience have probably been following the terrible predicament of the countries of Syria and Iraq that have been taken over by the group that calls themselves ISIL or ISIS or Daesh. They have go by several different names. Um, the issue of um, the use of sexual violence as a tactic of war has really also been one of the central components of our efforts on gender and peace building. One, um, we realize that such a tactic is... Uh, Unfortunately, often very effective. It really destroys communities. And uh, it is one in which, if you want to steal land, people use sexual violence as a part of their uh, efforts to terrorize. So these are just, you know, a a sample of the kind of issues that we deal with. Uh, The most horrific crimes that human beings commit. Against other human beings in war and in peace, I would add, Um, but also um, the very uh, positive efforts of really uh, working to make sure that all peace processes are inclusive um, of all the people who live in that society and represent the needs, concerns, and also, very important, the aspirations of their future society.
2: Mm-hmm. Gosh, such important, interesting, and complex work that you're doing, Dr. Keen asked. I think just immediately, of course, of the, the various things I've learned about Boko Haram and all those sorts of things that are happening there and a world that feels so far away t- from me, but yet I know still touches my everyday life as well. Um, just really hats off to the work that you're doing there at the Institute. Thank you. Well, it is a, it's a, an effort that's being done by, as
3: I said, uh, people here in Washington, but really, our most important uh, work and certainly our most important partners are those who are partners on the ground, who every day are living the the uh, the violence, living through the questions, the uncertainties, and living to find hope in even some of the most dire predicaments.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I want to peel back a little bit of a layer here because you're talking about the work you're doing today, which is incredibly fascinating to me. As this is a show really about work and career, I do want to come back and understand more about your actual career, just starting back with what even led you to pursue a Ph.D. in social-cultural anthropology that probably greatly under underlies a lot of the work that you do today. So if you could start with that first. Why why that field?
3: Uh, thank you. Well, um, I really... Uh, sometimes we choose things and uh, we think we're choosing them, but maybe they're choosing us. And uh, in the case of anthropology, I think the latter holds true. I um, often will say that I'm a, what a is called a third culture kid, meaning I grew up uh, part of my childhood out of the country. And so though I was always an American, I was always a stranger in the countries i'd lived in, and when I came back and started uh, high school here in the United States, I realized that my view of the world was a little different because I had not grown up with many of the same kind of American uh, perspective, including television, which of course, as you all know, uh, shapes shapes our ideas um, and especially as children. Um, and so I think I spent a lot of my early career, um, uh, trying to, uh, find something that really made sense to me. And part of it was that I loved everything. And that is what I tell people when I meet, especially young people who say, Oh, I can't really decide. You know, I'm interested in everything. I often say, Well, you might be an anthropologist and and really don't know it yet, um, because that certainly was something that I think I share with other anthropologists, is that we tend to come to problem solving with a very holistic perspective versus a, a sector view, or sometimes in Washington we call it a siloed view, but uh, we tend to uh, be very attractive to the whole of the problem, and then figuring out you know what our uh, the triggers of issues if, uh, you know, such as violence or the opportunities. And so I would say that anthropology more or less chose me. Um, but I did, through a whole series of unusual, um, kind of events, ended up doing my field work in what began as the Soviet Union. And uh, of course, while I was in the field, uh, in a country called Kyrgyzstan, um, the Soviet Union fell apart, and so it, it presented me with a lot of new challenges in terms of my uh, academic fieldwork.
2: I can well imagine and you know I have to weigh in because I am I feel like I'm something of an anthropologist as well because I study people and humanity and and I have to say I realized just what you said there I got the chance to live in Spain and Brazil for about 3 years in my mid 20s and being in the outside like that really did help fuel my curiosity about people I, that's very very interesting I appreciate that that perspective about anthropology I may pass it on to several of my students I teach today maybe they are <laughs> anthropologists and just don't know it yes um, well, how, how did you go from an academic tradition like anthropology and, and really make it work in an applied fashion in peace building? How, how did you do that?
3: Well, you know, again, um, uh, some of the problems are in our life really um, may appear as problems, but they actually then become opportunities. And uh, that was the situation for me. I was um, on the ground uh, doing my field work, in uh, Central Asia and asking the question, in fact, how did the Soviet Union and their gender policy of gender equality um, affect Central Asian Muslim women? And as I was asking that question, the Soviet Union fell apart, which meant uh, there were a lot of rapidly changing dynamics um, and this is what we see in gender that as societies change because of a disaster, an economic downturn, a war, um, the gendered notions that every society has as to the roles that men and women play and whether they're equal or not, those particular, uh, unwritten most of the time, uh, socially in- reinforced ideas about men and women often often, change as well. And so what I um, experienced was uh, the very, very rapid impoverishment of um, people in the country I was studying, but especially its impact on women, because um, women had been used to a high degree of education. Um, This was arguably probably the most educated group of Muslim women in the world was in Central Asia. Because of the Soviet Union's um, schooling, uh, the percentage of literacy was upward to 98% literacy in the Soviet Union. So they had high educational expectations. Um, they, uh, they're they often their most valued uh, Thing in their life was their own libraries, and what happened after the collapse of the Soviet Union was an economic upheaval in which they lost their jobs, uh, they, had, they found themselves on corners selling their libraries, their clothes, just to have enough food to, pay, uh, to feed their families. And um, that brought me into a world that I never expected to go into, and that was the world of economics. Um, I literally ran into somebody on the streets of Bishkek who said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm an anthropologist. He said, I'm from the World Bank. We need your help in trying to understand this rapid um, increase of poverty here. Can you help us? And so that's really how it began, and, and sometimes we forget that just meeting one person can open a door that we never expected to be open. We, we have our ideas. I, I was planning to be an academic anthropologist. Uh, I was really looking forward to that career, and um, my career uh, took a left-hand turn, and I felt very committed to the applied aspect of it because I experienced firsthand uh, the devastation of such a quick and really unplanned, if you will, economic disaster. And that's certainly what played out in many of the 15 countries that came, became uh, uh, countries after the Soviet Union fell apart.
2: That was a wonderful narration about such an important part of your life. Dr. Kinas, I so appreciate how you so palpably described that for us. It, I felt like I was right there. Um, mm-hmm. Believe it or not, we're already up for our first break. (laughs) It went so fast. Um, I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Dr. Kathleen Kinast, who's been talking to us about her experiences of getting into her field um, in anthropology. She serves today as the Senior Advisor on Gender at the United States Institute of Peace. After the break, we're going to hear more about the actual programs that she's been working on. Stay with us.
1: To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose.
4: Our world is shrinking. We get information across the planet as fast and as easily as across the street. Lately, it seems as if none of it is good. The world has become so addicted to negativity, fear, drama, and our kids are learning fast. Are you worried about your teen? Do you know where they are, who they're with, and what they're really up to? Power of Peace Radio tackles real issues that are changing the minds of the next generation. Get involved in the conversation on Monday evenings with Kit Cummings. Pop Radio is about interrupting and redirecting those who are on a dangerous course and bringing light into dark places with powerful topics and real stories. We bring hope to those who need it most. Because hope is the new dope. Power of Peace Radio, Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Empowerment.
1: Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez.
2: Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. We're here with Dr. Kathleen Keenest, who serves as the Senior Advisor on Gender at the United States Institute of Peace. She is the lead author of a recent book called Women and War, Power and Protection in the 21st Century, as well as the co-author of two other books and many other articles. She joined us today from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. Let's pick up where we left off, if we can. You you were mentioning a bit about how you got into the field, Dr. Keenest. I want to hear a little bit about... You had mentioned to me that Margaret Mead was important to you, and of course many of us recognize her as one of the most famous anthropologists in the world, but what did her work mean to you? Um,
3: Thank you, Elise. Uh, Well, uh, I obviously uh, never met Margaret Mead, but because uh, she was a woman and because she really was um, kind of I think a lead voice for the importance of understanding social and cultural systems from a holistic perspective um, I think you know she gained the respect of many um, I think what uh, you know Margaret was uh, known for was uh, you know her work on adolescent use in Melanesia, but what I think was most uh, unusual for an anthropologist of her day and of time in the, especially in the 50s and the 60s was her efforts to take a complex social science like cultural anthropology and to make it, uh, everyday. And she often contributed uh, articles to uh, women 's magazines. I believe Redbook was one of them in which she would talk about what is kind of a anthropology one hundred one approach to understanding other cultures she would And others have said, you know, you make the strange familiar and the familiar strange. And so in terms of talking about teenagers in the United States, um, she would draw upon what seemed like a world away, and it truly was, her work that she did on teenagers or adolescents uh, in uh, Melanesia. And so she uh, really... Amplified this applied aspect of anthropology and helped us understand really how similar we are, even if we dress differently, uh, even if our, our customs as we've come to know them are different, that many of our core human, uh, understandings are the same. And I think that contribution to, if you will, applied anthropology, um, is perhaps underestimated in academic anthropology and yet uh, I think well recognized uh, in uh, the general uh, audience uh, of trying to understand who we are as human beings and uh, what makes us tick. I think she also really and this is important for our work talking about violent conflict is help us realize that our culture, as we say—and I say c- culture with a small c—is not necessarily, uh, you know, carved out of stone. This is a very malleable human process that is passed on generation to generation through various institutions, from schools to religious organizations to, we know, the media has a huge role in our our gendered identities. And so I think she helped us realize that social cultural practices are mutable or malleable, they change, and that's very important as to uh, our sense of hope in the world. Mm. And that is a critical uh, key characteristic of uh, peace building in my estimation.
2: Mm-hmm. It's interesting as you were just describing that, the one word that was coming to my mind as you were saying that is the word hope. I was right there with you, so I, <laughs> I appreciate that. So- um, and, and one last question if I can ask about you before we get into your actual programs that I'm very curious about. I, I have seen that you've been described in at least one of the articles that I read as being an anthropologist of transition. I love that phrase. And it seems very apt to me given what I know of your work so far. But can you come on, comment on this phrase and maybe say how does it maybe suit you? Well, I think, you know, it. it's another one
3: of those unexpected um, uh, silver linings that occurred when I was doing my field work. I had hoped, you know, to walk into uh, a, a society and 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 look at gender dynamics. And uh, what happened as the Soviet Union fell apart? Everything sped up, and everything uh, changed very quickly. And so everything I had hoped to have observed, which is one of the key characteristics of our methodology and anthropology, it's called participant observation. We spend a lengthy time in the field to really try to understand a phenomenon. Um, it all sped up, and in its, if you will, falling apart, I could see the remnants of what had worked prior to this change. And, uh, was able to see what came of it. And so, um, and it suits me well because I work in, uh, societies that are undergoing, um, ac- accelerated change. And, uh, there's a lot of, um, different aspects that we have to pay attention to. Um, often there's aspect of trauma. This is a very traumatic period for people. Um, It has long-term impact on uh, identity, whether it's gender, race, age, and all, all the things that you thought were going to be about your life fall apart. And so there's a lot of grief. And so it brings a different lens to understanding change than just a typical yeah society change it it is an accelerated change that one must look to and have the lens of um, if you will, uh, human compassion because often so much is lost in these moments of change mm-hmm.
2: Such a beautiful description, just so so much there and how you speak about this and i want to I want to go a little bit deeper on some of these different programs that maybe you you're, you're engaged on, and i 'll get there next. Um, To cue that up, I, I do know by looking a little bit about your website and learning about your organization that the programming on gender and peacebuilding at the United States Institute for Peace is really all about expanding on the concept that gender is not synonymous with women and therefore examines in the context of violent conflict and peacebuilding efforts through a gender lens that you've maybe been mentioning that is inclusive of the multidimensional roles of men and women in society. So much there in that whole <laughs> phrase there. But can, can you give us a better understanding on why this inclusive approach matters in conflict settings? Yes,
3: that's a great question, and thank you for that, Elise. Um, we have come to emphasize that, um, well, let me just back up for one second. So much of gender has been um, positively moved forward through various um, social frameworks, Uh, you can talk about the feminist movements in the 60s and 70s, and then there have been all sorts of other uh, efforts to bring women into uh, the center stage of human society. And these efforts are critical. So there is no way we want to move women off this important track. Um, But what we've come to see in Again, the context of violent, uh, conflict is that gender roles do change, and sometimes where societies have had more, um, equality, more openness about gender roles, uh, they constrict. And so we've come to realize that, um, it's, it's not just about women. If women's lives are going to change, well, then men's lives change as well. And I do uh, hearken back to my work uh, in the former Soviet Union um, because they had a term that I think really captures this issue, and they used to call it uh, the double burden, that the women were allowed to work, they were expected to work, they all went to high school, college, uh, they had great jobs, they had uh, full jobs. Child care. I mean, they had, you know, a very socialistic approach to their roles. Nevertheless, they had the traditional role of caregiver of the young and the old, and that was a very laborious job. And so uh, they would call it the double burden. So they had a 24 7 job, if you will, and we know what that's like. And one of the things that has come True in this situation is that women's roles are not going to change until men uh, also champion the need for girls to be educated. And we see these in such places that everyone has heard a lot about, Afghanistan, of course, uh, in other parts of uh, the world as well. But it is true that in very highly sex-segregated societies um, that indeed girls are often not educated. And so this is a way for us to help men uh, in these societies understand the value of educating girls. So again, we can't do it alone. And I, I, I like to say, you know, Malala, the now very, very famous young woman who advocates for education for girls around the world um, had a father and there probably would not have been a Malala without her father and he stood up to many uh, people in his society especially men to say no my daughter deserves an education and we forget sometimes that we have to have an inclusive approach to gender equality in the world. And so that's why um, we emphasize gender. Men are gendered beings.
2: Women are gendered beings.
3: And uh, together, we have to create a more equal world. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, there's so much there that I could comment on, but to keep us on the track of really learning more about your programs here, I I wonder if what you were just talking about there about Malala's father maybe is relative uh, to this question I wanted to ask you. I noticed that there's a a program you've got called Men, Peace, and Security Initiative Work. It's an an initiative, and I just wasn't sure if maybe that's related to what you were saying about women in education. Is it or is it something else? Yeah, no,
3: well, one of the things, and it's important maybe to insert right here into our conversation, is um, this is a, a anniversary year for what is called the Women, Peace, and Security Agenda. Uh, many people may recall uh, 20 years ago at the Beijing uh, Women's Congress, of um, uh, then-First Lady Hillary Rodham Clinton announcing and pronouncing uh Human rights are women's rights and women's rights are human rights. Uh, Five years later, at the UN Security Council, they passed a resolution, which has been nicknamed 1325, um, that really uh, put forward that women in war have to count. And Literally, we never used to count women, uh, and we never saw what what war really looked like uh, through the eyes of women. And this resolution has done two things, to make sure women and girls are protected in war, and two, to make sure uh, they are at an integral part of the peace-building process. We are making progress. We haven't reached the numbers. We would like to have women engaged fully in these peace processes, but again, we are moving forward. So I have to frame the men, peace, and security by saying women, peace, and security, because, again, we feel that um, men also have to address the kind of what we call hyper-masculinity roles that often violent conflict, and now will add violent extremism, promotes for men and what happens for a society where men's identity and literally their path to manhood becomes fused with violence. Well, how do you unlearn violence if the only way you can get to manhood to be an adult man is to carry a gun? And to be violent as to, you know, show your, your worth to society. And so we've been asking a lot about that. How do you, how does a society like Afghanistan, where we now do have a, a pilot project looking at this question, how do men in Afghanistan begin to, if you will, disassociate violence from their sense of manhood? Uh, what about their, the, the uh, side of them that's a father, a brother, a son. What about uh, their efforts uh, in terms of a peaceful masculinity? So these are all frameworks, if you will, to uh, make sure we do have inclusive peace building. It's not enough for women to change. It's, it's men and women are society. This is an inclusive process uh, and not an exclusive process. Mm.
2: I so agree with that and want to hear so much more about that Uh, We are up for another break here I'm Elise Cortez, your host We've been on the air with Dr. Kathleen Kinast Who serves as the Senior Advisor on Gender at the United States Institute of Peace We've been talking a little bit about the kinds of programs that she's working on here And after the break, I want to hear specifically a little bit more about the program called Women Preventing Extremist Violence Stay with us
4: This is the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel.
1: Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose.
0: At the leading edge of quantum science, a revolution of ideas is emerging that challenges everything we believe about the nature of our world and how we define ourselves within it. Quantum Connection, exploring health, science, and spirit with Marina Rose. QDNA explores these cutting edge breakthroughs in quantum science and offers piercing, probing, colorful, insightful dialogue and commentary with some of the world's most influential thought leaders on the most important topics of our time. Listen every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment.
1: This is the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A L I S E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to working on purpose.
2: Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We're here with Dr. Kathleen Keenast, who serves as the senior advisor on gender at the United States Institute of Peace. She is the lead author of a recent book called Women in War: Power and Protection in the 21st Century, as well as the co-author of two other books and many articles. She joins us today from Washington, D.C. She's been talking about some of the programs that she and her team and various partners across the world have been working on. I want to cue up next what we were talking, we're just about to talk about before the break. And that is this project called Women Preventing Extremist Violence. Can you tell us more about that? That sounds incredibly interesting to me.
3: Okay. Well, um, thank you so much for the, for the good question. Uh, one of the things that we know when we begin to think about security in the world is that we often think of men and security and certainly uh, we have raised this question in terms of security around violent extremism, and one of the efforts that we explored over the last four years has been what role might women in their everyday lives around the world play in preventing and countering violent extremism. We um, basically developed a pilot project um, which um, has been underway in Nigeria, a country uh, well familiar with violent extremism as a result of the group Boko Haram, and also in Kenya. And uh, they're in long fight now with al-Shabaab. Both of these countries have um, very uh, much uh, a community look at these issues And we wanted to um, bring together women who lead civil society or businesses um, in their local communities and really learn from them as to what is happening on the day-to-day level. And so um, we began this process of helping them uh, reflect on what they are already doing, what areas they have influence on, and uh, ways to understand the multiple roles that women in this case can specifically play. Now, you know, having said that, we know that women are not homogenous. They have not only many uh, uh, characteristics, uh, they come from many different uh ethnic groups uh many different ages we forget that women are all different ages as well and so it's important to keep that framework but um nevertheless uh, i think we've um uh, we had an uh international forum this past march uh we have a video up on our website in which uh some of these uh, civil society actors uh described uh, the, the diverse work from uh, a radio program that really works with mothers who are illiterate, who can't necessarily read about what's going on, but who, through radio programs uh, in, uh, in in this instance in Pakistan, have uh, been able to learn how they themselves can strengthen uh their voice uh in their families as well as in their communities so it takes many many different forms and shape and there's no way that you know one program fits all these um, reflect the communities in which these women come from but i think what is really the the important message here is um, to keep women in the heart of understanding their role in helping to prevent uh, violent extremism. And uh, that reshapes our security lens and gives us, frankly, more options in solving this problem. Mm.
2: Oh, my gosh, such an, an amazing amount of, of really interesting and, I would say, very multifaceted and deep work that you're doing there. I have to say I am, I'm salivating at what you're doing. It's just really <laughs> sounds amazing to me. I'll go in your back pocket next time you go one of these places, all right? All right. <laughs> Uh, well, maybe this is related to this, but one of the other things that I wanted to, you to talk about is another project that's called Women in Governance, which I understand has you partnering with local lo, with local partners really to empower women in Afghanistan to increase their civic and political participation in, in elections and beyond, as I understand it. But is there a specific project associated with this effort, or, or is this ongoing? Or Tell us more about that.
3: Okay, oh, this one, uh, this project uh, was something that we uh, began thinking about before the Afghan elections a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of uh, just, quote, a get-out-the-vote kind of approach, we really thought deeply with our um, Afghan partners to contemplate what does it mean to be, uh, you know, civically engaged. Um, we, I think in America, often don't even think about it because it is so part and parcel of our education. Um, But the civic engagement, you know, our duty as a citizen to make a difference every day is something, um, especially in the, uh, you know, 20 years of war in Afghanistan um, has been difficult to cultivate, much less to cultivate trust. Um, And so we really wanted... uh, to begin from that framework and to give uh, women from uh, all the provinces a chance to be engaged in the uh, uh, civic engagement of elections. Um, So what ultimately uh, developed was uh, a forum that met met in the national uh, capital of Kabul uh, where about 220 women leaders from all parts of, of Afghanistan came, and their number one goal was to meet with the 11 presidential candidates. Now, this had never happened in Afghanistan, and I have to say, much less in other parts of the world. And so... Uh, these uh, presidential candidates, and a few of them had representatives, but they were represented, had uh, a day with these 220 women where these women asked, you know, what are you going to do with, for example, the passage of the elimination of violence against women law or ideas for, uh, you know, w- engaging women in uh, the security forces or in other uh, government opportunities. And so it was a real opportunity for uh, these men and women, uh, all the men, I mean, all the um, presidential candidates were men and all the civil society actors in the room were women. So it was a really important engagement uh, to help shape the story and to make sure women were a part of the election process and their
2: issues were
3: on the table.
2: Mm. I so applaud that. And again, I think that's this extraordinary, wonderful work and oh gosh, I, I love hearing about that. And um, I don't know. I just want to, I really want to applaud what you're doing there. I just think it's so important.
3: Well, thank you. I'm, I am, I am, uh, just one person amidst many, many people who do fabulous work here, and uh, and especially our local partners. I want to emphasize that that uh,
2: this kind of work doesn't happen in a vacuum. Hmm. Hmm. I understand that, and I appreciate you. You need to call that out. I, I do understand that, and. Uh, but, again, the effort is wonderful. And, and maybe related to that, I, this is maybe what I heard you talk about at the Dallas Luncheon here that I'd love for you to share because I, I want people to understand that they, too, have a role. Anywhere where they are, they maybe can help out here. And You, you talk about this phrase of the everyday peacemaker. Um, what do you mean by this phrase? And what kind of work are you doing to support the initiative? Maybe it's related to what you just said.
3: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, you know, I think sometimes... Um, it feels like some kind of lofty or you know you have to have a special skill set and I will say that there are so many different skill sets needed for peace building and we all have some of them and certainly uh, it it shouldn't be left just a small segment of any society or any government that this is really um, a way of um, looking at the world and trying to better equip us equip us with a sense of how do we solve everyday conflicts because that is human there is we're not trying to eliminate conflict we are trying to eliminate violent conflict okay um, and 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 in that process understand that we are peacemakers in trying to find common ground we are trying to find how to sort out a problem together and um, to uh, recognize not only um, the need for all of us to be a part of it, but our own accountability. And certainly, I think um, we heard a lot of that uh, when uh, Pope Francis, for example, visited Washington a couple of weeks ago when he talked about climate change. You know, this is this is a peacemaking effort. You know, and uh, yes. we need to be uh, all on board and accountable. And I think it it really is about doing this every day. It's uh, there are these uh, projects, and there's certainly efforts in very violent conflicts that are both being handled from a military perspective but also a uh, non-military peace-building perspective. But we have to see that we're all engaged. Mm-hmm.
2: That's what I thought you were going to say, Dr. Kinas, but I really wanted to cue that up because I wanted to make sure that our listeners could hear that, yes, while you are part of a very impressive organization doing work all over and across the world, away from the United States, that still all of us can do something to contribute as well. I just really wanted to make sure that we talked about that. I thought it was important. Thank you. Yeah, you're well, welcome. Well, to bring us forward just a little bit here, maybe we've been talking about several of the, of the programs you're working on. I, I, wanna, I understand that you are headed off to Belfast, Northern Ireland here pretty soon to give a, a keynote address for a reconciliation center there called, if I've got this right, Cory Mila. And I further understand that you volunteered there back in 1980 during what is called the Troubles. So I'd love to hear a bit about, you know, what did you do there and what are you going to talk about in your keynote?
3: Oh wow, I I uh yeah, 1980. Uh, I was um in my 20s and probably trying to define or figure out myself as well and um I ended up uh going to this uh community um because I was really interested in uh how a society turns in on itself and certainly that it, been going on for decades if not centuries in Northern Ireland. Um, I had the privilege really of working with very young children there that would come from typically urban centers like Belfast or or Derry and um, basically uh, you know learning to get along with one another. Actually you know the first thing was just the first time a Catholic and a Protestant kid stood in the same line together because they also lived a very segregated uh, life, both in their communities as well as in their schools. And so a lot of it was about uh, building a sense of trust and also um, generating an understanding that you know, they really are the future of this society. And how can we help them solve their problems, even at a very young age, without resorting to violence? Now, what am I going to say? Yeah. Do you know weeks? yet? I'm, I'm working on it, and uh, I've been asked um, to speak to the issue of gender and peace building. So many of the conversations we've had here today and a few weeks ago in Dallas, I will certainly be repeating. Um, I have the great privilege of uh, being uh, on the podium with uh, the former president of Ireland, uh, Mary Robinson, who is really one of the leading experts in the world on climate change. So I will also be doing a great deal of listening because this is truly uh, an urgent and related question because we need to know how to solve climate change in a nonviolent way.
2: Mm-hmm. How wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And we have just just a moment here, but do you have any, just maybe in 30 seconds, any final parting thoughts you want to share with our listeners about working on purpose? Anything you want to share before we close? Oh, working on purpose. Uh, you know, I think, uh, like
3: I said, sometimes our careers find us, and I do think our purpose sometimes is more revealed to us and we show up one day and we realize we are working on purpose, it's not necessarily something that you can go to school in. Um, But you should be following those intuitive opportunities and certainly paying attention to sometimes meeting one person in your life can redirect and help you understand more about what your own life purpose is all about. So. Mm.
2: What a wonderful way to close. Thank you so much, Dr. Kinas, for being on the show with me. I've enjoyed every moment of this, and I know our listeners have as well. So thank Elise, you for taking Thank the you from, for
3: your great yeah. questions and uh, for your enthusiasm and th- this opportunity uh, to speak about
2: uh, the peacebuilding work of the U.S. Institute of Peace. Oh, you're welcome. So glad to have you. And to that end, if you do want to learn more about Dr. Keenast and her work and the partners she works with in the United States Institute of Peace, please do go to their website. It's www.usip.org. Thanks for staying with us today. Enjoy the rest of your day. And remember, it works at least one third of our life, so let's work on purpose.
3: We
1: hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work.
0: Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.